This is the Champlain Society podcast, Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I'm talking from the office of Patrice Dutille here at Ryerson University. Patrice is my guest today to talk about his newest book, Prime Ministerial Power in Canada, Its Origins Under MacDonald, Laurier, and Borden. Welcome to my office, Greg. Hi, Patrice. Now, you've uh, done a lot of things in your life. You have uh, not only been an academic, but you've been a public servant, a policy advisor. You've worked in the film industry, the television industry. You were also the founding editor of the Literary Review of Canada. And, of course, for many years, uh, you've been the president of the Champlain Society. What brought you to uh, work on this book? This book actually goes back to a very early interest. When I first started looking at politics as an undergraduate, there was this wonderful line in a, in a book called Thinking Politically by Jean Blondel that opened a question about prime ministerial power. Blondel was wondering about prime ministerial power. This struck me. I was an undergraduate. It was a long time ago. It always stuck with me. It always stuck with me. That line always stuck with me. And of course, you know, through the years, and this, this was 40 years ago, I've always been a student of prime ministerial power. Never had the time to look into it, but finally things came together and I started doing the work actually prompted by the late Stéphane Dubré, a professor at the University of Toronto, who invited me to write an essay on prime ministerial power and administration. And so that got me going. It was a book review and it got me going, got me thinking. And of course, we were living we're living in in this in this uh, period when we think of the prime minister as being omnipotent, where the centralizing uh, aspect of the prime minister seems to engulf everything else. And my historian instinct was kind of rattled by that. And I said to myself, what if we looked at what if what if we looked at the prime ministers of the past and tried to see how they managed administration and see whether this this idea of centralization existed then. So, I mean, as a historian, as a political scientist who's very much interested in institutionalism, I went back to the origin of the prime minister in Canada, and that's 1867, and decided to focus on Johnny MacDonald, of course, Laurier, and Borden, and really try to find ways to measure their influence. We know very well how politically potent they were. Lots of biographies of all three characters, studies of all three characters. But what about their administration? What was their, what was their approach to public administration? So this book really brings together the elements of my life. It's a political science question. I use public administration techniques, but I'm looking at historical data. Well, that's right. That's what makes your book different because a lot of people have looked at it from the lens of and through the lens of political power. But what you do is a little different. In fact, it's quite different. You really focus on the administrative machinery, the management of that machinery, the leadership that's required to direct that machinery, and the people. You really look at the relationship between the prime minister's and their respective cabinets, and even more importantly, the most senior officials in their government that are really running the machinery on a day-to-day basis. Well, as a former deputy minister yourself, you'd be very sensitive to that. You lived it personally, working with a premier. You worked with uh, Premier Romano in Saskatchewan for many years. So, yeah, a book like this would be of particular interest to someone like you, someone who's lived it from the inside and who's sensitive to that, that transmission belt that goes from the political to the administrative. It's never been looked at. It's never been looked at. 
And, and that's certainly not in a historical perspective. We have lots of books that, you know, anecdotes, memoirs that give us a glimpse of that, but it's never been studied systematically. No, and in fact, the literature seems to divide into two sort of uh, almost uh, sealed boxes. One is public administration, the public service, the bureaucracy, and the other are the political leaders, politicians, um, what they do in terms of the legislative side of things and the power that they exercise through the executive, but not really the transmission belt between the two. So that's why I was interested because, yeah, there are differences between Westminster parliamentary systems and congressional systems, but there's a commonality in terms of that transmission belt. It's been my experience, in fact, that the least effective governments in the world, those that are elected perhaps on major reform platforms, but they can't even get to step one because they don't know how to manage that administrative machinery. They don't even know the level of capacity that they need. They bring in all their friends to occupy the highest positions, and it turns into a disaster. I think our Westminster system has a, a definite advantage in that regard because there aren't so many layers of politicians between those people who make policy who finalize policy, namely the politicians, the cabinet, the prime minister, and those people who report directly to this person, uh, namely the deputy ministers. So that transmission belt in our Westminster system is almost direct. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a rubber band, it's a chain. And from my perspective, I want to see, you know, how did MacDonald and Laurier and Borden manage that, that, that function? And what I've discovered is, is that these guys were remarkable administrators. Uh, let's start with MacDonald. Uh, he comes in in 1867. He's 52 years old. He's been in government in one way, shape, or another for almost 15 years, 16 years, since the 18, since the 18, 1854. He really got, comes into the first government, his first government, not as prime minister, of course, but he's, he's minister of justice. And he knows people as a result of this. He knows who's in the bureaucracy, He's got a great flair for administrators. And what we see in his cabinet is that he attracts people, he selects people who have deep administrative experience. He also, I, I, I discovered, um, had a very elderly deputy minister corps. So that in 1867, the cabinet is rather young and the deputy minister corps is rather old, relatively speaking. MacDonald wanted experienced people. He knew that government was going to be difficult. And there's nothing more difficult than creating a new government. This is Machiavelli who said this. Nothing is more difficult in politics than creating a new state. MacDonald knew this, and he relied on them. It's very interesting because when Borden assumes power in 1911, it's completely the reverse. The deputy minister corps is much, is much younger than the, uh, the minister, the ministerial corps. So there's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm attentive to that. I think that Age matters, and I think that many people will find this rather bizarre that in a scholarly book like this, I, I specify ages. I went through the research. I did the book. Well, I, 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 I kind of like that because you know the age of absolutely every actor in your book, and, and you're always comparing that. I don't know about you, but I always compare them to myself or to others that I know. It's constant, constant. Well, you know, we have there are traditions in Canada, some provincial traditions that uh, tend to elect premiers very young and I always worry about that uh, you know but what is the right age for a prime minister should it be somebody who's deeply 
uh, experience, who's really older, or should it be somebody who's younger, who's got new ideas, new energies? Anyway, the, the, the all three of the of these guys, McDonald was fifty uh, was fifty five, uh, Laurier uh, was fifty seven, um, and Borden was when uh, they started. When they started, yes, yes, uh, and Borden was a little bit older than that. So I think it matters. They come with experience. Okay. Well, the thing that struck me, and I didn't expect this, was that McDonald actually created quite a dense uh, machinery of government in terms of the departments and the agencies, and staffed more than I expected. I don't know what I had in my mind. I thought of something that was pretty minimalist, and I was reminded of the executive building in Washington, D.C., which housed the entire public service at the end of the 19th century. And here was McDonald in 1867 building up a civil service that was probably as large as that which existed in the United States outside the military. Yes. And I was amazed because, after all, the United States is 10 times bigger. Um, there were all kinds of responsibilities in the central government following the Civil War. It centralized very radically because of the Civil War, and yet the civil service was tiny. McDonald took administration seriously, and I think we owe him that recognition, that he took public administration seriously from the get-go, and he was often at odds with his deputy ministers. I mean, they wanted a lot more control. He wanted to retain some patronage control for a lot of good reasons, I think. Um, now he selected his deputy ministers or he inherited the deputy ministers, but he, because he had placed them there in the 1850s, he, he wanted to make sure that the people who were serving him, who were serving his government as deputies, were at least half, half of them, politically partisan. That's right. But a lot of the politically partisan people seem to be people more in the mid and lower levels. And in terms of the deputy ministers, what struck me was how much they ranged across the political spectrum. Well, I was absolutely amazed at these patriots that he had in the deputy ministerial rank in his government, people that were totally opposed to conservative ideals, that were once his sworn enemies, and yet there they were, slaving away for him in this strange relationship with MacDonald. A genuine team of rivals. I find it remarkable also. Patriot on one side, people who came with Lord Durham on the other side. Conservatives, proud nationalists, lower Canadian nationalists, what you call Quebecois today, and yet, yes, absolutely, uh, working for MacDonald uh, and, and, and working hard for MacDonald to create the country of Canada. Now, I can understand this at the political level. It's yeah. like Abraham Lincoln and his team of rivals. He had to put together a group, many of whom felt they should be the president of the United States and having very, very different political views on on the future of the United States. So you could see that as a country is being built the party system hasn't fully formed yet. There's not really a conservative party in the sense that we think of it. It's, it's more of a loose coalition. The liberals are a loose coalition. Uh, so, yes, you'd have quite a wide variety of folks in the cabinet. But when you're talking about the civil service, then you get to choose anybody you want. And yet he's got this very diverse group. And McDonald, again, it's important to emphasize, and I, I, I wasn't aware of it until I, I started looking into it, um, attracted and retained young French Canadians to be deputy ministers. 
there were a lot of French Canadians, and they were in big portfolios. Uh, public works, for example, uh, post office, uh, stuff like that, uh, military. So, I mean, it, it was not just easy gestures or lower, less important portfolios that he gave French Canadians. It was a genuine demonstration of how he valued the French Canadian contribution to the building of the country. These things mattered. This is why Canada survived those those difficult first years. Um, he kept a hand in patronage on the outside, the outside public service. And a lot of people criticized MacDonald for the heavy patronage. The deputy ministers didn't like having to yield control over the outside service to the political. But MacDonald insisted on it, and so did Laurier. Why? Because they needed to ensure that the public service in the regions was compliant, that it was going to follow the orders of Ottawa. Again, today we take this for granted, but Ottawa in 1867 is in the middle of nowhere. We have reports of how Ottawa could be snowed in for a week. No mail, no communication, no telegraph, no telephone, no fax, no email. You need to have a civil service that, a civil service that is going to obey, that is going to live up to what the laws have prescribed. And you only could do that if there is a personal a personal link with the prime minister, with the party. And we again, we find that reprehensible. The deputy ministers found it reprehensible. They thought it was unprofessional. But there's no evidence that these politically sensitive appointments in the regions actually hurt the country's administration. Far to the contrary. And that's why I think the system lasted for so long. It'll take Borden three years into the war to finally change that system. Now, I too have always been critical of the the idea of the fact that the Prime Minister's office has become centralized in recent years and that this was a major departure from the past. I agree with that. But I've also written that and, and done some historical research which found that there was one aspect that did change in the early 1970s, or at least appeared to change, and that was that the, uh, the, the Prime Minister... Uh, through the office of the clerk of the Privy Council, had a formal appointment process centralized in the Privy Council office for deputy ministers, and therefore, in a sense, that the prime minister was directly responsible, of course, on the advice of the clerk of the Privy Council, but in fact, the clerk of the Privy Council played an enormous role. The uh, provincial variant of that was in the Saskatchewan government, the first provincial government to centralize that system. Alan Blakeney did it in the early 1970s, and uh, he made sure that he controlled the appointment of deputy ministers, and he matched strong deputy ministers with what he called weak ministers. He wanted them to complement his ministers. He, didn't, he did not want the relationship to be overly cozy. He wanted to, to be constructive. He wanted to be professional. And if he sensed that there was too close of a relationship uh, that went beyond the professional, he would change up the minister or the deputy minister. But the question that I have for you is, it sounds like, based upon your uh, historical work, that the prime ministers always had a, a, a large say in who was the deputy minister, and that uh, this has always been taken into consideration in terms of cabinet shuffles. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's part of the Canadian tradition. MacDonald uh, worried about it a lot. Uh, he didn't shuffle deputy ministers very much. He tended to shuffle 
his uh, his ministers. He uh, there's a great deal of stability in his deputy minister corps. Same with Laurier. He made sure that at least half were politically partisan. Laurier did the same thing. Uh, not all of them, not all of them, but at least half, and had great confidence in their in his deputies. Really confident that they would do what was required of them to do. What's important about these ministers is that they worked every day. And that's one thing that I think I, I, I was a revelation to me. The degree to which MacDonald, Laurier, and Borden were workaholics. These guys worked it. They were involved in every aspect of administration. You look at the way MacDonald used orders in council. This is where, again, I think my book has some originality. We started counting orders in council. And what we, when I say me, we, I say me and my research assistants, we looked at 20,000 orders in council. And to try to see uh, what the pattern was, MacDonald uh, used and abused orders in council. Until his death in 1891, he doubled orders in council. Interestingly, Laurier will, will stop using orders in council. Well, no, it doesn't stop, but we'll have them. And it will take uh, three years of war before Borden's government achieves the same number of orders in council. Now, orders in council are orders by the government. It could be appointments. It could be uh, directives. It could be orders, commands to the public service that will uh, have the force of law, that have the force of an act of parliament. They have to be, they have to be uh, obeyed. So it's important to look at orders in council, and it is a very uh, autocratic tool. The government can decide this is what it will be. Well, it also has no parliamentary oversight in the sense that uh, unlike laws, um, unlike uh, general policies, which are very evident uh, to the opposition, an order in council seems to be a very minor, uh, almost regulatory type change, um, a directive, and it just doesn't have the same scrutiny in parliament. We went to war twice on orders in council. Uh, Laurier used an order in council for the Canada's participation in the Boer War. Borden did the same thing uh, with uh, Canada's participation in the First World War. It was an order in council. And next thing you know, this democracy is at war without deliberation in Parliament. But that goes to point, again, it points to the, the, the reality of how central the Prime Minister's office was in those days. And it has continued since then. What I've uncovered are basically the mechanisms by which the prime minister established his political strength. I use his because they were all men. Established his political and administrative strength inside the bureaucracy. It goes with appointments, but it goes beyond that. Yes, and that, uh, and I wanted to make that point. It goes well beyond appointments. It deals with the what is public administration folks call the machinery of government. Uh, the way in which you design your departments and your agencies, but more than that, the way in which you design your cabinet and your cabinet support processes. So let's talk about the uh, machinery of government. It seems that MacDonald and his successors spent a lot of time thinking about the machinery of government. In my day, we always said that the machinery of government was the purview of the premier. In the federal case, the purview of the prime minister. The clerk plays, obviously, a major role in that. I played a major role in the, as cabinet secretary in making recommendations uh, to the premier concerning changes in, in the machinery of government. Many of the changes were made with an eye to improving efficiency, 
preserving the time of cabinet ministers, making sure you made the best possible use of, of cabinet ministers' time. But probably even more importantly, when trying to initiate something quite new, innovative, a new policy direction, whatever it was, you relied heavily on changing the machinery to get that job done. This is something that is often overlooked that I see in the political science and the public administration literature, yet you've covered it in this book, uh, looking at the history. I mean, you look at McDonald. Uh, a good example is uh, McDonald coming back to power in 1878 and recognizing that there's a serious problem in the prairies, that Aboriginal people in the prairies are suffering, they are starving, and the government of Canada needs a response. He creates a ministry uh, of Indian affairs. He names himself the minister of Indian affairs. He increases the budget dramatically to respond to that. It's a good example of creating that institutional response to a particular crisis. Laurier will come in uh, in his own. Uh, he will create a ministry of labor because labor issues become very important at the turn of the century. He will create a Department of External Affairs because Canada is embroiled more and more in imperial demands. And as, as his personal assistant noted, Canada's foreign affairs are are locked in the, in the brain of the prime minister. And we can't just have that anymore. We need to have an administrative capacity to manage Canada's external relations. It can't just be uh, in the prime minister's mind. So we have a sophistication there. I was very disappointed in Borden in that regard. I don't think Borden did very much in terms of institutional innovation. What he did essentially was create political committees to oversee the work of the bureaucracy, where Macdonald or Laurier would have created new institutions uh, Borden simply created political apparatus, political committees, uh, to oversee the work of the bureaucracy. Well, on Borden, it looked like he took what I call the policy off-ramp. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well said. He, and he basically farmed it out to key individuals for uh, working in commissions for temporary periods of time. Sometimes they had decision-making powers, sometimes advisory powers. But in the end of the day, the government still stuck with the problem and still stuck with the administration of whatever apparatus got set up by the uh, temporary commission. The only innovation was uh, a department to help uh, returning veterans. And that was a small thing that, we, that he created in late 1917, early 1918. Otherwise, yeah, the machinery remains intact. There's very little that Borden did, considering, again, the transformations in, 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 in the Canadian government in terms of the budget, how much money the government of Canada was spending. It's remarkable how little he innovated. And worse, Borden made himself a reputation when he was in opposition. He was in opposition for a long time as a reform, a reformist, an administrative reformist. And I think he did very little there. I, that's why, I mean, I call him an incompetent administrator. I'm pretty harsh. Well, that's right. You know, you, you, can, you can talk administrative reform, but to actually think it and do it is a, is a very unique skill. Clearly, MacDonald and Laurier had it. Many political leaders that we don't normally think would have it have an excess of it. They have a tremendous ability in that area, and that is partly their success, but they pretend not to be doing that. <laughs> For, for often for political reasons or simply to avoid a, a, a light, a spotlight being placed on them and somebody discovering the secret of their success. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, 
individuals bring different strengths to the office of the prime minister. Some people are really strong politically. Uh, they have very little administrative background. Some people do bring an administrative background, and some are mixed. Again, I look at my three guys. McDonald came with a strong administrative background. He knew how to run things because he'd been in government for a long time. Laurier had never run a thing in his life. He'd never succeeded at anything in his life, quite frankly. Uh, he ran a small caucus of liberals. That's hardly administration. Borden had a lot of administrative experience in the private sector, but he didn't bring anything of, of that to... Uh, to, to public administration, except, again, to, to simply rely on other businessmen that he appointed to various commissions to oversee the work of the bureaucracy. That was his contribution, but I don't find that to be very significant. One of the terms that you use that I very much like, a phrase, muscle memory, and I have seen that and experienced it in government myself. I was very curious about the way in which the Saskatchewan government worked when I was there in the 1990s. And I didn't really understand certain ways and processes, so I studied a dissertation written at Harvard by one Al Johnson, who had been a deputy minister during most of the Douglas period and then a deputy minister in the federal government. And he outlined exactly how it ran. He also explained the origins, how all of those features were put in place with by a government that was intent on implementing one of the most ambitious reform agendas of the 20th century. And I was absolutely amazed in reading this, and everything clicked in for me about what I was dealing with and why I was dealing with it. In fact, I convinced Al Johnson to eventually write a book uh, out of his dissertation, uh, and that book, I think, has made a major contribution Very to understanding. So. It was published in the IPAC collection. I had a hand in that. <laughs> That's right. And, but, but talking about muscle memory, how can the way in which a government works, if it's identified with a particular political party, but even on changes of government where another political party, which is very hostile to that government, and that was the case in Saskatchewan because mm -hmm. yes. you had the CCF, later NDP. It was defeated by the Liberals, but an, it was an anti-CCF-NDP coalition, later defeated by the Conservatives, and yet they ended up using the same processes, the same institutions, I don't think they liked them particularly. It's just that there was so much momentum and there was there was so much reflex uh, in that that they never had the ability to change those systems very effectively. I think that comes back to our system, our Westminster system, that gives the bureaucracy so much authority in determining how things will evolve. I'm not saying that things don't change. Things change. They change very slowly. But we have the muscle memory of the bureaucracy in how policy will be developed and how policy will be dissected and tested before it is actually implemented. And I think that those automatic stabilizers, to borrow from another, another field, have allowed Canadians to have government that is fairly consistent, that we don't have big lurches left to right. There are some exceptions, but it's seldom the case. In our, in our system evolution, administrative evolution is slow and steady. And I think that's been a good thing for us. I think it's been um, 
a very good thing for us overall. Sometimes we wish for more changes. A lot of people want changes in healthcare. Another one of your areas, uh, and we know how hard it is for healthcare to change. There are so many structures that are encrusted into into the system that is Im- practically impossible to break through that kind of thing. But politicians play a big role. And again, coming back to the the historical example of McDonald, Laurier, and Borden, they did demonstrate that new ideas can have an impact. Uh, and they what made them different is that they were clever in using the bureaucracy to achieve their ends. Some more clever than others, but nonetheless, very clever. But come, to come back to the muscle memory, though, is that in those 50 years of Confederation, we established the prime minister as central to government and central to administration, far more than other Westminster jurisdictions. And that has made Canadian governance unique. And my point is that it goes back to the to the very creation of Canada. It's not something that has that was innovated in the 1970s, as many people would would um, would argue today. That the centralization of power in the office of the prime minister really starts in the 1970s under Mr. Trudeau. I say no. Look at the historical record, and you will see that that muscle memory was actually born in 1867, and adapted over the years by the various men who occupied that position of prime minister. The impulse remained. It adapted, it changed, and today, because of communications, because of 24-7 communications, uh, again, has forced change on the Prime Minister, but the impulse is the same. Now, one of the things that I experienced in working with uh, Prime Minister and various premiers is that uh, the, the, the very good ones had a skill which is not talked about very much, but which you ta- which you really do touch upon in this book, which is their ability to spot talent. And it's a combination of talent and work ethic. And now I'm, I'm not talking about cabinet, I'm talking about the senior public service. And the ability to come to judgment quickly on individuals such as these and appoint them and then work with them. And that seems to make the difference between a very good premier or prime minister and a not-so-good premier or prime minister. And on this one, it seems to me that McDonald and Laurier excelled. But uh, reading between the lines, (laughs) I don't think Borden was particularly good at it. Borden had a particular dilemma. I told you earlier that Laurier had made so many changes to the deputy minister corps that a lot of them were, were, were rather young mid-40s, late-40s. And Borden, the gentleman that he was, decided not to change them. He could have booted them out, but he decided not to do that because that's, that, that's not part of our tradition. But he, you know, he could have muscled them off, and he didn't do it. In contrast to Alexander Mackenzie in the 1870s, Alexander Mackenzie uh, had a very different experience where Borden got along with the young talent that Laurier had selected. Mackenzie did not get along with the Tories that MacDonald had appointed in, in deputy minister positions, and it became a screaming match. There was a select committee in the mid-1870s, uh, a select committee of parliament, called to examine the situation. They brought in deputy ministers to, to appear before the committee. There was a feeling inside the Liberal Party at the time that they were being betrayed by the deputy minister corps. And I think there's a lot of room for that. There's a lot of room to agree with that. These were old Tories. Uh, and 
I think they talked so, some were some were patriots and some well, should yes, have. yes 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 but but they were all very partial to the to the uh, conservatives and of course Alexander Mackenzie made a, a mistake a terrible mistake that is I think very illustrative of of the centrality of the office of prime minister you know McDonald the office of the prime minister is not in our constitution it's not recognized never the only way that you could be a prime minister is if you occupied a portfolio and so McDonald chose strategically, the Ministry of Justice. He was the Attorney General for the Government of Canada. That allowed him to look at every piece of law that uh, was being brewed in the bureaucracy. That made him central to the creation of Canada. Alexander Mackenzie chose Public Works because he was a Mason. Well, Public Works is a great portfolio, but it is a lot of work. And he was buried under the detail of running the Public Works. He could not be Prime Minister at the same time. But more importantly, it put him in the West Block of Parliament Hill. That's where the office of the Minister of Public Works was. The reality in Ottawa was that all the brains were in the East Block. All the finance guys, revenue, finance, customs, all that stuff was in the East Block. He was cut off. And you know you know how important it is to have hallway conversations. You know that hallway conversations is what makes policy. Have you talked about this? Have you done that? Are you, when's, you know, when, when, what's your deadline on this? The kind of discussion that we have in, 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 the, in the public service that is decided in the hallway, proximity matters. Well, all the key deputies were in the East Block. He was in the West Block. I'm convinced that that distance, even though it's not enormous distance, but that distance engendered a coldness. And he could not get his administration to work properly, and he was defeated. The government did not work, and he was defeated on that basis. Well, Patrice, thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you, Greg. My guest today was Patrice Dutille on his book, Prime Ministerial Power in Canada, its origins under MacDonald, Laurier, and Borden, published by the University of British Columbia Press in 2017. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publication, its blog, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to donate a bit if you like the conversations that we have with historians about Canada's history. The Champlain Society is entirely voluntary, but money is always needed to keep the lights on. Thank you for joining us today.